Friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14, where we'll spend the next bit of our time together. If you're using one of those Bibles that we provided for you, you'll find the part that we're going to look at today on page 847, and it'll be a huge help to you and to me if you got that open in front of you as I try to walk you through what's there. A few months back, we watched this movie on Netflix called Enola Holmes. I wonder if you guys have found your way to this yet. It's a, uh, I guess it's a... Uh, it's it's, it's a, a, an interesting modern spin on a really old and beloved tale. It's involving Sherlock Holmes, but it doesn't focus on Sherlock, and it doesn't even focus on a character that comes to us from Arthur Conan Doyle. It, it focuses on a hypothetical character, a little precocious sister that Sherlock supposedly had back there in Victorian England, a, a, a sister who, who comes of age while her brother is coming to fame, who who as a youngster, probably middle school, early high school age would be my guess, is, is watching her 30-something-year-old brother take headline after headline as he takes down criminal after criminal, and she knows what the world doesn't yet know, that down inside of her, she's got everything that he's got. She's got the same intellect. She's got the same drive, the same hunger and curiosity. The only problem is that she's trapped in a world that expects her to be something different, a world that doesn't think she could do what he could do, a world that doesn't take her as seriously as she wants to be taken. And it's a coming-of-age story that shows her trying to bust her way out into that world to do what her brother is doing and to prove herself to everyone. And throughout the movie, there's a line that comes up over and over again. It comes to her first through her outside-the-box mother who tells her, learn from my experience. It comes up again over and over throughout, and it's the final line that she gives to you as she looks the viewer right in the eye and rides off on her bicycle at the end of the movie. The future is up to us. The future is up to us. I wonder how that lands on you. I wonder if you're living like that's true. I wonder if you'd want it to be. In a way, there's something freeing about the idea that the future is up to us. And certainly that was the idea behind the movie. You can do what you want. You don't have to fit into the expectations of one after another after another institution that tries to form you into their preconceived idea of what you ought to be. If you're a college student and your parents are coming to town for a visit and you know the dinner is going to be on them, you love to hear them say, where do you want to go? Pick anywhere. The future is up to you. But you know that exact same line put in a different voice? A different context could be about as terrifying a statement as I can imagine. Imagine your job gets downsized just as all the costs in your life are getting upsized. And imagine you've got a family to feed and no clear sense of where you'll get the income to do it with. And someone looks at you and says, the future's up to you. Well, that's a different statement altogether, isn't it? In that context, it's no longer a statement about being or doing whatever you want. It's basically another way of saying you're on your own, pal. <laughs> you'll stand or fall by your own strength your own resources, your own grit, or good fortune. I wonder, friends, do you live like the future's up to you? Is that how you think about yourself and your responsibility? In these chapters we've been considering together the last few weeks, 
Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. He's been with them for years at this point. And now he's pouring into them for the last time. Now he's about to leave to them the work that he's been doing in front of them. It'll be theirs to carry on. And it would be really easy to imagine this scene right here playing out like a sort of locker room pep talk for Jesus to speak to them like everything hangs in the balance. It's like halftime. And this is the championship game, and it's tied. Everything hangs in the balance. So go out there, dig down deep, leave it all on the field, send them back out there in the game saying, you've got this. The future is up to you. But instead, he's focused not on what they bring to this work he's giving them, but what he gives them to accomplish this work he's giving them. He doesn't tell them the future is up to them. He, he tells them, what he, through them, he's telling us now. The future is in his hands. And he's provided everything his people need to face that future with confidence and hope and peace. That's what we're going to see together in the few verses we'll consider this morning. Jesus offers two parting gifts in these verses. The gift of his spirit to teach us. That's gift number one. And the gift of his peace to ground us. That's gift number two. The gift of his spirit to teach us. The gift of his peace to ground us. Let me read the text for you. I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word. While I pick up reading in verse 25 of John chapter 14 and carry through to the end of the chapter, verse 31. Jesus is speaking and he says, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Two parting gifts from Jesus to his disciples and to us. Gift number one, the gift of his spirit to teach us. Right at the center of Jesus' follow-up plan is the one that he calls the helper or the Holy Spirit. Jesus has been with them up to now. Then he will be with them through this spirit. Verse 25 lays it out. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. You've had me up until now. But, verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit... Whom the Father will send in my name, he will carry on the work with you. He will be with you. I will be with you through him. And he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said. 
This isn't the first time or the last time Jesus is going to talk about the Spirit as the one through whom he'll carry on his work once he's gone. And in our verses today, this, this, these two verses we've just, just uh, mentioned again, we don't get everything that Jesus has to say about this Spirit. We just get a little slice of it. But what he says here shows us something absolutely crucial about why this gift is so precious. The, the Spirit's job, the reason we have this helper, is to make sure that we all could know the beauty and the power of what Jesus had to teach. I want to show you how in one way this is a gift for the disciples, the people he's speaking to, and then in another way how this is a gift for us too. In, in a way, it is a, a direct gift to the disciples, something they uniquely got to, were, were offered for a unique job that he had given them to do. We're not exactly in the same position they were. Because this Spirit's teaching is going to have a very specific content to it, Jesus says. He says that he's going to teach all things, but then he gets more specific with that next phrase. The all things he's going to teach is focused on what Jesus has already taught, helping these guys remember what he said to them. So think about the Spirit's role as not to draw out new revelations from every person who enjoys the Spirit inside. Little by little, from one Christian to another, unveiling the truth. Think about the helper or the Spirit's role as instead to, to drive home what Jesus has already said, to bring back to their minds and to, to, to take down into their hearts the things Jesus had spent the last three years teaching them. That's why at first this is a gift that the disciples had to receive before we could. Think about this. They'd been with Jesus for three years by this point, roughly. And by with Jesus, I mean like with Jesus, 24-7. 365. They ate with them, traveled with them, slept next to them, worked and talked together all on the same routine that whole time. And you don't have to read very far into the Gospels to know that Jesus was always teaching. Wherever he went, whatever he did, he was teaching. I mean, even a fig tree they happened to walk up on turned into a, to a, an object lesson. And these guys didn't have iPhones with voice recorder apps. They didn't walk around with little recording devices for Google to involuntarily collect the things that were said and store it in the cloud for later use. And even if they had all of that, imagine that three years is a lot of data. How are you going to assimilate that all? How are you going to filter through it to figure out what you need to hold on to? John himself says at the end of this gospel that he only chose to write down here what he could fit into a manageable book. That if the whole world that if, 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 rather if you, had, if you had written down everything Jesus had to say and teach, the whole world couldn't have held all the books. That's a lot of data. And on top of the sheer scale of everything that Jesus had taught them, I mean, we've seen enough by this point to know who he was dealing with, right? These guys are not exactly dialed in most of the time. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw him saying, Philip, have you known me so long? Have I been with you so long? And you still don't know who I am after all that I've said to you and all that you've seen. How, with that much teaching... And these hard-hearted dudes that I see myself in on the receiving end of all that teaching, how could Jesus be sure that what he taught them would make it down into their own hearts, much less to others after he was gone, much less to us all these years later? How could these men stand up to that job? There's only one answer. They would need the gift that he intends to give them. The Father would send the helper 
in Jesus' name, the Spirit would bring to their remembrance all that he said to them. One of the main reasons Christians trust the Bible is that we see in it all sorts of signs that it really is eyewitness testimony to real historical events. If you haven't ever considered the evidence that I'm talking about, I would love the chance after the service today to talk you through some of it. And if you're interested, even put a book in your hands that will survey some of it and follow up and talk about that later. These documents bear a lot of good, clear historical evidence for authenticity. But Christians, the reason we believe that these first-hand eyewitness accounts of what happened actually carry the authority of God in our lives is a verse like this one. That we believe these men were not just, they were not just remembering things they saw for themselves. They were guided in what they wrote by God himself through his spirit so that the words they chose to put down on paper are the words God wanted us to get all these years later. This was a gift that comes through the disciples first of all. But having said that, there is also a beautiful, a wonderful way in which the gift of this helper is directly for us too. What does Jesus say that he's supposed to do? To bring to your remembrance all that Jesus said. The disciples needed that first because they heard it first. But I've been reading the things that Jesus said for most of my life basically since I was able to read. And every day, I forget. It's not like I don't remember that they're a thing. I, at the level of my heart, I forget what Jesus has said. And last, if you put this text together with what we saw about the Spirit last week, his job is to open hearts to replace an, in, an, in, an inner renovation job so that hearts of stone become hearts of flesh, so that, so that hearts that were resistant to God's ways become hearts that love God's ways. If you think about the Spirit as an internal uh, renovating agent, and then you put together this, this notion that he brings back to our minds the things that Jesus has said, you marry those two and you see something beautiful about the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. His job is to convince us of what we believe. To remind us in real time, in the real circumstances in which we really need hope, that it's all really true. Think about what Jesus said, even in this Gospel of John. John chapter 6, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No exceptions. That's what Jesus said. And now his spirit tells you it's true. It's true. It's true. You come to Jesus, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you did like an hour ago. You come to Jesus as you are, he will never cast you out. It's really true. A few chapters later, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. A good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. 
I lay down my life of my own accord. No one takes it from me. I want to. And a couple chapters after that, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus said. And the Spirit's job is to remind you today, it's true. It's really true. He did lay down his life for you. No man has a greater love for you than Jesus. And he still loves you. In John chapter 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet he will live. That's what Jesus said. And when you're standing next to the deathbed of somebody that you love dearly, or when one day you are lying on that deathbed yourself. Jesus has given you his spirit to come to your mind and heart at that moment and bring to remembrance what he has said about everyone who trusts in him and tell you it's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. You can believe it. It's still true. Hold on. What a gift he has given us in his spirit to teach us. It was a gift for the disciples, but it's a gift for us too. Because he knew we'd need it. Now there's a second gift that Jesus takes us to in these following verses. Not just the gift of his spirit to teach us, but the gift of his peace to ground us. Pick up with me in verse 27. Peace I leave with you, Jesus says. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. What a rich way of putting it. Pass number one is, peace I leave with you. That's basically a greeting. That's basically, have a good one. Take care. See you later, alligator. Peace out. Translation, I'm gone. But to make sure that we see there's more going on here, Jesus takes a second pass. Not just peace I leave with you. Not just peace out. My peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. A specific peace given in a very specific way. Not the way the world gives peace. Will he give his peace to his own? How does the world give peace? In John, the world means uh, not everyone that exists, not the whole universe as God has created it. It means specifically a way of living and seeing things as if God was not. It's, it's God roped out. That's what he means by world. A, an organized uh, rebellion against God as creator and, and author of life and uh, an authority in our lives. Imagine how, how would you get peace in a world without God? Well, I mean, there was that option we talked about earlier. The future is up to you. You've got this. There's the pep talk option. And it can work for a while for some of us. But that's not a peace that's secure enough for me. How can I know I'll have what it takes? Especially when I have no idea what's going to happen to me tomorrow, much less next year or the year after that. I don't think that one works. Or, or we've got out of the picture, we might go for, uh, we, we might go for you know, the, the, the kinds of positive thinking that, that work well for people like me who tend to be pretty optimistic in general, you know, kind of even keel and tough to get down. Every now and then I'm driving in traffic and I notice a bumper sticker that tells me life is good. 
I think, yeah, it is, usually. Or I see one that says, Igbok, it's going to be okay. Y'all seen that one? I think sometimes that's exactly what I need to hear because sometimes I do live in my own head and it really will be okay and it's not as bad as it seems, but <laughs> well, what if it's not going to be okay? I mean, sometimes that happens too. Not everything is always okay and even those optimistic ones among us are going to learn that the hard way sooner or later. Does that make you feel better? Can a bumper sticker penetrate down into your heart? Maybe the, the best version of peace that the world can give is the ancient pagan wisdom that gets, that gets quoted a few times in the Bible. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's a little wisdom in that, I guess. I mean, it's true. The future does mean death. Can't do anything about it. May as well make the most of whatever time I've got. And without God, making the most of it probably means doing whatever it takes not to think about the future at all. <laughs> that can work in spurts from one party to another one. But do you really want an approach to life that only works if you shut yourself down? If you just disengage the mind and stop thinking? If it really depends on not paying attention, it's not wisdom, it's foolishness. But Jesus says, not as the world gives peace do I give you peace. My peace isn't like that. We need a peace that can take whatever comes for us. One that will hold up no matter what's in store. And that's the kind of peace that Jesus has. And it's the kind that he came to give to his people. So what is his peace? What does it look like? What's it based on? And, and how can we share in it? What is his peace that he's talking about? In the few verses that follow the, the promise, I see three components in the peace of Jesus. And they're all three components that he gives to us. Let me show you how Jesus had peace and then show you how he gives it to you. What kind of peace does Jesus have? Well, it's first of all based on the fact that Jesus knows where he's going. Jesus knows for certain where he's going. This comes out in verse 28. He says, you heard me say I'm going away and I'll come to you. If you'd loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. The Father, in other words, now that's the place to be. There is nowhere better to be than where the Father is with him. Imagine you're an elementary school kid and you ask your best friend to come over for a sleepover next weekend and they can't come because they're going to Disney World. You'd be real sad about that, sad to miss them, maybe a little jealous, but if you... If you loved them and you really wanted what's good for them, you'd be glad for them that they get to go to Disney World because Disney World is definitely better than your house. That's kind of what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. If you really loved me and you weren't just thinking about yourselves here, you'd be thrilled that I get to go there. The Father is greater than I. He's not making a statement about the Trinity and how it works here. We've seen him make other statements that were more along those lines. He's not saying that inside of God there's a hierarchy where the Father trumps the Son who trumps the Spirit. No. He's made it real clear already in John that he and his Father are one. They're equal. That's why they're trying to kill him. Because he was so clear about it that they think he's a fraud. He's blaspheming against God. And that's why they want him out of, out of the world. He's not trying to say that the Father is greater in that way than the Son. They are equal. But, 
But the Father is absolutely in his glory right now greater than the man, Jesus, who was standing there in front of them, speaking to them. In his humanity, Jesus' glory was veiled. What I think he has in mind is basically what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2, that, that the Son of God, eternal, always with God, in the form of God, Paul says in Philippians 2, did not consider that equality with God, even though it was his. He did not consider it something to be held on to, but he, but he made himself nothing, and he became like, a, like, like one of us. And he was obedient to God all the way to the end, even to the point of death on a cross. And because he was so obedient, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every other name so that his name every knee will bow. That's what Jesus has in mind. For now, the Father is greater than I. In my humanity, you can't see who I am and where I came from. And I don't experience in my humanity what I had with the Father before the world was made. But I will. Soon enough, I will. And if you loved me, you would want that for me. He is, in other words, saying, I have a peace tethered to a world that I belong in that no one can take from me and where I will be soon enough. He knows that nothing he could go through, no power in heaven or on earth or under the earth could possibly stop him from ending up where he desperately wants to be. Jesus has peace because his future is certain. I'm going to the Father. He's greater than I. Jesus also has peace because he knows how he'll get there. Not just where he's going, but he knows exactly how he'll get there. He knows he's about to suffer and die. But that's no barrier. That's no diversion from his plan. This is the only path to the future that he wants so badly. That's what he's getting at in verse 30. Look there now. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. The reason he's not going to be with them much longer is that the ruler of this world is coming. He's talking about the evil one. The Bible calls him the evil one, calls him Satan sometimes. He's referred to as the prince of the powers of the air. Or here, the ruler of the world. Think of the world as the realm without God. The, the life here as if God is not, as if he's not to be worshipped and trusted and believed in. That world has a ruler, and he's coming for Jesus. But Jesus knows that. And he knows that even though Judas is going to betray him, and the Jude Jewish leaders are going to accuse him, and the Romans are going to execute him, it is this ruler of this world who's behind it all, and this ruler is walking right into his trap. He knows that even the evil plans of the evil one only serve his agenda. Friends, there is so much goodness packed into this little phrase. He has no claim on me. <laughs> he has no claim on me. There is no toehold in Jesus. No chink in this armor to exploit. When the ruler of this world came to Adam and Eve, he pressed on their weakness and tempted them with just the right offer. He tried that with Jesus. He got nowhere. And he had no guilt he could throw back in Jesus' face like he had to work with with Abraham or Moses or David. He couldn't tempt Jesus. He couldn't accuse Jesus. His only move left was to torture and kill Jesus. But he could only do that 
Because it's exactly what Jesus wanted him to do. That was the plan all along. He, Jesus is just doing what the Father commanded him. So when this would-be ruler of the world grabbed hold onto Jesus' killable body, he was not crushing his enemy once and for all like he thought he was. He was offering up a sacrifice that would end his rule forever. When those nails went into Jesus, he was nailing his own coffin tightly shut once and for all. Or as Hebrews puts it, Hebrews 2.14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He became like us, killable. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. Jesus knows exactly where he's going, back to his father. And he knows exactly how he'll get there. Through the worst that his enemy could throw at him. And Jesus has peace Because he also knows what he's doing along the way. There's component number three to his piece. For now, in the meantime, with every step, with every word of every day, his purpose is to show how glorious, how satisfying, how wonderful his father really is. Or as he puts it in verse 31, I do as the father has commanded me. I am obedient even to the point of death on the cross so that the world may know that I love the father. There's his motive. So that the world may know that I love the Father. His love for the Father is not a statement about him. It's a statement about his Father. Think about it. When the the evil one came to him and threw everything he had at him in the wilderness, in his moment of weakness... He was really throwing at Jesus one after another opportunity to love something more than he loves his father. You're hungry, aren't you, Jesus? Here, eat and serve me. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every mouth that proceeds, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I love my father more than I love food. He comes to him on a high mountain. He shows him the kingdoms of the world. He says, they could all be yours, bow to me, and I'll give you power beyond your wildest imagination. Jesus says, no. He loves his father more than power. And here at the cross, going exactly where his father commanded him to go, offering himself up to the end, Jesus has the opportunity he has lived for his whole life to show that he loves his father more than life. His father is life to him. What can you take from me if I have him? Jesus' peace was untouchable. And that's a peace you won't find anywhere else, friends. It's a peace you won't find anywhere else. And it's a peace that he offers to you as his gift. My peace, a peace rooted in knowing exactly where I'm going, and exactly how I'm going to get there, and exactly what I'm doing with my life along the way. My peace, I give you. I I love the way the old Bible scholar, Matthew Henry, talked about this verse 300 years ago. He said, when Christ left the world, he made his will. His soul he bequeathed to his Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And his body to Joseph, who collected him and deposited him in his tomb. His clothes fell to the soldiers who cast lots and divided them amongst themselves. 
His mother, he left to the care of John. But what should he leave to his poor disciples who had left all for him? Silver and gold, he had none. But he left them what was far better. He left them his peace. Friends, what would it look like for you to enjoy the peace that Jesus had? How could you and me receive this gift from Jesus to his people? Well, first of all, we need to be real clear about where we're going, just like Jesus was. He was completely confident that he was headed to his father, that no one could stop him, that no one could take away that future home, and no one could possibly top the joy that he would experience when he got there. He knew that, and so he had peace. But if you were here a few weeks back, you may remember at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus talks about this same destination, not just as a place he's going, but as a place he's going to prepare room for his people. He's going so he can take us. He told them there that he was going to the Father. That theme has been driving this whole chapter along. But he didn't say, nice knowing you guys. So long, suckers. Later, alligator. He said, no, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, if I go to all the trouble of preparing a place for you, let me tell you, uh, I will come back and bring you to myself that you may be where I am also. And we know what he was talking about there. He didn't have to prepare a place by fluffing the pillows and repainting the walls. The place is fine already. He had to prepare a place because he needed to make it accessible for sinners like you and me. He had to go through the cross to account for the fact that we had broken our peace with God. And our alignment with the world. And our living as if he wasn't there. As if we didn't know everything to him. As if we couldn't really trust him. As if his words weren't good and right and true. When we live like that, we broke our peace with him. And we can't be where he is if we're not at peace with him. So Jesus going to prepare a place for us was Jesus taking the cost onto himself of forgiving us for what we've done against God so that we could have a place where God is just like he has. And if you accept the peace he paid for, you can experience the peace he lived with. You can know exactly where you're going beyond the reach of time and death and loss and disappointment. Friends, any peace that's tethered to this world is not peaceful enough. Everything here is vulnerable. It's only a matter of time. If you want to know peace like Jesus had, you got to know that your future is secure beyond this world. You need to know where you're going. You also need to know how you'll get there. The suffering of Jesus, we said this already, it, it was no accident. It, it wasn't a score for the ruler of this world and a setback for the Father. It was all and always part of the plan. And, and even though our suffering isn't like his in some really important ways, when we suffer in this life, we aren't giving it up for somebody else so that they can be set free from their sin. That's not what our suffering does. Even though our suffering is different from his, the Lord does use our suffering in this life for the same end goal that he used Jesus' suffering to prepare us to be in this place with him. If Jesus' suffering was about removing the stain of sin from our lives, our suffering can be part of how God removes its ongoing presence and power. It can be how he breaks us from, uh, from our love for the things of this world. 
and, and how he attaches us to a love for who he is and what he has offered. Friends, if, if your peace can't handle hard things, it isn't strong enough. Because the truth is, is that life just, it always does get harder. In one way or another, it does get, get harder. There was a while in my young adulthood anyway where I didn't live like that. I think I always thought if I could just get to that level of training or just get that job or just get that family locked in, there was always something out there I thought, boy, I just have so much less to worry about if I had all that in the bag. Then I could just live my life. <laughs> it's so foolish. You guys, are, I can see the ones of you who get it laughing out there with me. It only gets worse. Not worse. I mean, it's still good. But it gets way harder because all those things you've been working at come with responsibilities. Instead of things out there you're reaching for, they're things that live right here on your shoulders day and night. They're things that wake you up, that make you worry, that show you you don't have what it takes to protect what you love. And then you start to lose things. It may start early. It will happen eventually. You start to lose. Your body breaks down. The people you love move on. And if your peace is tied to anything you've grabbed hold of in this vulnerable world of change, it is not peaceful enough. It cannot be locked into a certainty that nothing bad will happen to you. That standard is impossible. What a wonderful thing, then, to be offered his peace. Remember what his peace was like? <laughs> it was definitely not tied back to comfort. In his prime, this man had nowhere to lay his head. At his strongest, he wandered all over the place dodging angry mobs. And that was nothing compared to what he's about to face right here, right now. In the hours after he speaks these words, things are about to get real for him. You might think, I, if I just had, if I just knew I could bank on everyone thinking well of me, then I'd have peace. I wouldn't be so stressed. But Jesus was mocked and scorned and publicly humiliated in front of a crowd who surely assumed that he deserved every stripe that he received. And he had peace. You might think, I know I'd have peace if I could just be sure everything would be okay. If only that bumper sticker were true. But I just keep running with all the what might be through my mind. If I could just know what would happen, I'd be peaceful. Friends, Jesus... Let's just take the worst thing that might happen that might be in your mind right now. Whatever that is, Jesus got worse. In your wildest imagination, you won't have a worse day than he's about to have. And he had peace. He knew it was coming. He had peace. How did he get a peace like that? How do you get a peace like that? Only if you know what he knew. That in God's hands... Even the worst that can happen, even the terrible suffering we pray doesn't happen, only serves to bring his children closer to him. It only serves to fit his children for his presence. It only serves to wean us off of what was always going to let us down and attach us to what never could. That's First Peter chapter 1. In this living hope you rejoice, even though now for a while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You know 
that those trials are so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, you can face anything if you know that everything you go through, the Lord is using to drive you deeper and deeper into his love and draw you closer and closer to the unclouded future that he's promised you. You'll need to know not just where you're going, but how he's going to get you there. And finally, you'll need to know what you're aiming for in the meantime. We need to know what to do now. What is our target today if we're going to have peace? Because peace, especially in times that are hard, it requires meaning. You need to know what it's for. You need to know what your life is for. You need to be confident that there's something worthwhile to get up for, especially when it's hard. Something to do that, that matters. Something you can focus on in any and every situation. That's what you've got to have if you want to have peace. Jesus had that. And now he's giving his peace to us. And we'll need exactly what he had. He knew that everything he faced and everything he did was an opportunity to show that he loved the Father. An opportunity to say to the world, there is nothing more precious than him. Friends, if, if this is what you live for, if you live to show that you love the Father, that he is worthy of your love, come what may, if that's what you get up out of bed for in the morning, you will never have better opportunities to do what you long to do than when you face things you would otherwise never ever in a million years want to face. The book of Job began with a challenge. The evil one, the ruler of the world, he comes to the Father, he picks up one of God's righteous followers, a man who was righteous and enjoying all the fruits of righteousness that Proverbs said you should expect him to enjoy. And the ruler of this world says, he only loves you because of what you gave him. You take away his healthy body, take away that family full of healthy kids, you take away his stock, his homes, his money, see if he worships you then. In some ways, the ruler of this world presents us with the same challenge every time we lose something we love. And in some ways, the suffering we go through presents each one of us with a chance to show, not just to the world, but to ourselves, where our heart really belongs. We absolutely ought to praise God for good gifts. We absolutely ought to love Him through those gifts. We absolutely should tell everybody that the good things we have came from him. But from the outside looking in, when you're sitting pretty, your love for the Father may not be that noticeable even when it's there. But when things aren't good, that is a different story. When you love him then, well, that grabs attention. That raises questions. And if you know that's your chief goal in life, then you can have the peace of Jesus no matter what. You can have a peace that will hold out through anything because it's tied back to knowing that the worst things that will happen to you will also be your best opportunities to show what you live to show. When you grieve in hope, you tell the truth. 
about him. Friends, will you join me in praying that the Lord will give this gift of peace to us? Father, we know how easy it is for us to look for security in things we can see and touch. How difficult it is to hold out our hope in you and you alone. We pray that you would help us by your spirit. That the one who came to remind us of all that Jesus said would remind us that all of it's true. And give us a perspective to face even the things we don't want to face with the confidence that you are with us still and out before us as our home. And that nothing can keep us from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.